In 2004, the BBC conducted a world survey of the attitudes to religion of respondents in, in various countries. And it showed that there seems to be an interesting contradiction in the mind of British people uh, about God. So the survey showed, for example, uh, when there was a statement, I find it hard to believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world. When that statement uh, was offered to people for their response, it commanded the highest agreement rate in the UK of all the countries polled. So people in the UK would say in, in vast numbers, I find it hard to believe in God when there's so much suffering in the world. Then as you, you went on down the survey, there was another statement. God could prevent suffering if he wanted to. And that statement commanded the lowest possible or lowest response of any country in the UK of all the countries polled. So do you see what we're saying here? We're saying on the one hand that we find it hard to believe in God because of the suffering in the world. But at the same time, we say that even if God does exist, he probably couldn't do much about suffering even if he tried. So if we believe in Britain in any kind of a God at all, he's a very weak God. Not a strong God at all. This is the issue we're going to think about for a while together this morning uh, as we look at this passage. How strong is God? And in particular, we're going to ask the question, is he strong enough? Is he able to, to control evil and to keep it on a leash? I'm dropping back into our series today after a three-week holiday. So many of you have probably been coming and going uh, throughout uh, July and August so far. Let me recap just as quickly as I possibly can to make sure that we have the story so far and that this material today is in its right context. When we met Job at the start of the book, we met a man who we were told was blameless and righteous, who feared God and who shunned evil. Job's a good guy. He's the best of guys. And we learn very quickly of how disaster struck how he lost his fortune, his family, and eventually his own health. And then on the third week, we came to look at Job's suffering, his response to what God is doing. In chapter 3, we find an opening lament where he, he asks the natural question, why? Why did this happen? Why to me is there any sort of an answer for this? Since those opening chapters and those opening three, uh, those opening uh, sessions, we've looked at Job's friends, Job's faith, and then most recently Job's search for wisdom. But, but those, that opening cry of Job's, the, the why question, hasn't really been answered. Job wants to speak to God. He wants his question answered by the living God. And at the start of chapter 38, we get the moment we've been waiting for, 37 chapters. Because God speaks. He speaks to Job. But his reply doesn't take the form that we might have assumed. God doesn't slide in and answer the questions that Job's been asking. Instead, he begins to ask some questions of his own. 
Who is it that darkens my counsel? So chapter 38, verse 1, with words without knowledge, brace yourself like a man. I'll question you and you shall answer me. Job wanted God in the courtroom, but God shows up and starts asking Job some questions. I sometimes, when I'm reading certain parts of the Bible, feel limited in my ability to read well uh, some of the beautiful parts of Scripture. I felt that way this morning, Job 38. Some of the most beautiful poetry in the history of world literature. Look at verse 4. Were you there when I laid the earth's foundation? Verse 12. Have you given orders to the morning or shown the dawn its place? 22. I just love the, the image there. Have you entered the storehouses of snow or seen the storehouses of hail? The Lord's speech goes on into chapter 39. So if you, if you flick with me through into chapter 39, verse 19, do you give the horse his strength or clothe his neck with a flowing mane? Chapter 39, verse 26, does the hawk take flight by your wisdom and spread his words or spread his wings towards the south? Throughout these two chapters, we find what's, what's really one speech of the Lord's. And he addresses Job and he says, look around you, Job. Look at the stars, the clouds, the waters, the land, the wild animals, the funny ostrich, the war horse, the eagle. Did you make these? Do you know better than me? Are you God? Because if you are, I'll, I'll happily move aside and let you run the universe. But if you're not, then shh. The Lord concludes his speech, his first speech in chapter 40, verse 2. Will the one who contends with the Almighty correct him? Let him who accuses God answer him. Shortly before Clement Attlee, uh, won a landslide victory in the general election of 1945. He was having a lot of trouble with the chairman of the Labour Party, a, a certain Professor Harold Lasky. Apparently, Lasky kept writing to him, telling him that he wasn't doing his job well or right and that he should resign. Attlee ended one of his replies, one of his letters back to Lasky, uh, with, with these pointed words. A period of silence from you would now be most welcome. Sometimes God says that to us. Just as he did to Job here. My dear Job, thank you for your 20 chapters worth of letters. Telling me how to run the world. Suggesting that I'm not doing it very well. A period of silence from you would now be most welcome. And to his great credit, Job gets the message. Chapter 40, verse 3. Then Job answered the Lord, I'm unworthy. How can I reply to you? I put my hand over my mouth. I spoke once, but I have no answer. Twice 
but I'll say no more. Yes, Lord, I'll shut up. In the presence of my creator God, I'll shut my big mouth. That's pretty much what happens with the Lord's first speech. But has it answered Job's question? Job's question, remember, is why, why do I suffer the way I am? And the Lord's answer so far seems to be, look around you, understand that I'm the creator of God. I'm in control of this world so you can trust me with your unanswered questions. Is that an answer? Well, yes, it is, and no, maybe it's, maybe it's not. So far, God hasn't answered the, the question of evil and suffering in this world. It's all very well for God to say, yes, I created the world and I sustain it. But what about the world that we actually live in? What about the world of the troubles and of the Holocaust? What about a world where people take to the streets and riot and loot and kill one another? What about the world of Job's blameless suffering? There's a hint of an answer in Job's first speech, and it prepares us for what's going to come in the second. So in chapter 38, verses 8 to 11, God's talking there about his absolute sovereignty over nature, and he asks the question, who shut up the seas behind doors when it burst forth from the womb? When I made the clouds its garment and wrapped it in thick darkness, when I fixed limits for it and set its doors and bars in place, when I said, this far you may come and no further, here is where your proud waves halt. Got to understand what the sea means in biblical imagery. The sea, the raging water, is the place of threat and of chaos and hostility to the people of God. So in chapter 38, the sea bursts out like an unruly and precocious newborn child from the womb, but the sea doesn't cover the whole earth. The creator fixes limits. If you look carefully at the language, it's almost like he takes this newborn, this this toddler, and, and puts it in a playpen and says, that's it, that's your bit, that's where you belong. This far you may come and no further. So there's a hint here that under God, evil is restrained. And that's, that's really the gist of the Lord's second speech. So if you, if you keep flicking with me, we're going now to material that we haven't read at all, chapters 40 and 41. We don't really have time to deal with these chapters in any sort of detail at all, but if you got a chance to read them, you'd see that they... They introduce us to two mysterious creatures. Chapter 40, verse 15. The Lord invites Job to look at Behemoth. And it's some sort of land animal with with a terrifying reputation. In chapter 41, the Lord describes Leviathan, an equally terrifying creature, but this time it's a water beast. 
And what are they? Well, if you look at the footnotes in the NIV of the Pew Bibles, it indicates that some people think Behemoth is a hippo or an elephant and that Leviathan is a crocodile. Other commentators said, no, it's not an elephant, it's some other animal. It's not a crocodile, it's some other. If that's right, then what God says here in this second speech doesn't seem all that different than what he's been saying all along. In the first speech, God asked Job whether he had given the horse his strength. Now he asks him if he can tame a crocodile. Well, the point is essentially the same. As I read chapters 41, sorry, 40 and 41, that interpretation absolutely didn't do justice to what the passage says about these two creatures. This second speech, when Job responds at the end of it, he moves to a much greater level again of worship and repentance than he did after God's first speech. There's a sense in which we're expecting something more in this second speech. We expect it to be somehow climactic. And Christopher Ash, in his commentary, he says, if this second speech is simply saying, Job, you haven't made a hippo or tamed a crocodile, then it is an anticlimax. In one of his plays, the skeptic George Bernard Shaw puts it like this, God really has to do better in explaining the problem of evil than saying, you can't make a hippopotamus, now can you? So what are Behemoth and Leviathan? In the ancient world, if you wanted to, to speak about the world, you often did so in, in terms of stories or myths. One of the stories or myths that was doing the round is of a terrible monster sea serpent god, an enemy an archenemy of the chief god of the pantheon. In these old stories, often you'd find that this, this sea monster god was fighting against the other gods and against the chief god. Now, those stories are clearly not the stories of God's people. They're the stories of, of polytheistic cultures who believed in many gods. And while the Old Testament writers used these stories to teach uh, people about the one living and true God. What they were doing was they were, they were reaching into the culture around them and saying, you know that story about Leviathan? I'm going to use it to illustrate what I want to teach you about the living God. So let's have a look at Leviathan, this sea monster. Job had already mentioned him in chapter 3, verse 8. Flick back with me quickly to chapter 3, verse 8 of Job. In chapter 3, I find it one of the hard chapters of this book, he, he's cursing the day of his birth. And he says in verse 8, May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. Now, all the commentators agree, Job's not talking about a crocodile here. To raise Leviathan is to, to raise God's arch enemy himself, the prince of darkness. It's almost what we would call Satanism, to call up Satan to come and to reverse the goodness of God's creative order, to bring darkness and chaos and mayhem. Leviathan's not a crocodile in Job chapter 3. 
and it seems unlikely that he's a crocodile in Job 41. By the way, if you're, if you're interested just in establishing this identity of Leviathan, check out Psalm 74, Isaiah 27. It seems that Leviathan in biblical imagery is the arch enemy of God, the prince of the power of evil, Satan, or the God of this world, as Jesus calls him. So what we're dealing with now is the embodiment of beastliness, of terror, and of evil. And in this second speech, God is finally addressing evil in the created order. The Lord makes the point that this evil is very, very real. And that only he can keep it on a leash. Look at how the Lord talks about Leviathan. Chapter 41, verse 1. He uses a warm irony. He says to Job, can you pull in Leviathan with a fish hook? Go on, Job, have a go. Grab your fishing rod. See if you can catch him. See if you can reel him in and bring him home as a pet for your kids. Of course you can't. Job, the whole idea is ridiculous. Are you going to try and take on cosmic evil on your own? In verse 8, the Lord says that if Job were to try, if he were to lay even one hand on this monster, he'd remember his struggle and he'd never try again. You haven't to hope, Job. Not against the evil that's in this world. And then I, I have to say I was surprised by the turn that the Lord's speech took in verses 10 to 11. The Lord says, no one is fierce enough to arouse Leviathan. Who then is able to stand against me? Do you see what he's saying? The Lord's been talking about Leviathan's terrifying strength. And why? Why has he filled Job's mind with these images of terror? Here's why. So that Job might understand that though Leviathan is terribly, terribly strong, that the Lord is stronger still. The Lord's speech in this book, the whole of the book of Job, ends in verses 33 to 34. Still speaking of Leviathan, he says, Nothing on earth is his equal, a creature without fear. He looks down on all that are haughty. He is the king over all that are proud. This is the ruler of this world that Jesus, as Jesus called him in John 12, 31. The prince of the powers of the air as Paul calls him in Ephesians 2. And the point of Job 41 is to make us tremble at the awesome power of evil. Here's the Lord telling us, Job, you can't even begin. You can't even begin to take on the power of evil in this world. You can't do it but I can. Look at verse 33. From God's perspective, Leviathan's a creature. It's a created being. I made him, the Lord says. I can tame him. He's on my leash, even if he can't be on yours. I wonder, are we getting the point now? 
imagine you're out walking in some remote part of the country up in the morns or somewhere nearby and you come across a, a, a distant farmstead and you walk towards it and you're walking into the courtyard and in an instant you hear these dogs barking, rushing at you and they're wild and you can see it in your eyes. There's only one thing going through your mind. Are these dogs on a lead? Are they somehow restrained? Is the owner about to call them off and call them back? As Job's suffering, his deepest fear is that there is no lead. There is no one standing in the background who can call the dogs off. That the attacks will go on forever. That he is unprotected. That there is no sovereign God with evil on a lead. But there is. And when Job grasps it, he's filled with wonder. Look at 42, verse 2. He says to the Lord, I know you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. We knew right from the outset, because we read chapters 1 and 2, that Satan is clearly restrained in all these events. On both occasions in the early chapters, Twice we're shown the Lord giving permission to Satan to go and attack Job. But even now, by chapter 42, there's never once been a moment where Satan has gone further than the Lord allowed. He's on a lead. He's not allowed to go beyond what the Lord allowed. Job has questions about why he's suffering. Questions about the nature of evil in this world. And we, at times, or our loved ones, at times, carry these questions too. I wouldn't suggest that the material we've thought about today answers all those questions. It doesn't give us a tidy formula to explain suffering and evil in the world. But it does something deeper. It opens our eyes to the presence and the reality of God. Even Leviathan, even Satan is God's Satan, as Luther once called him. Our suffering is never beyond the control of our loving God. As Bible readers, we have to wait until the New Testament to discover a little more about, about Leviathan and how it was that God finally won a victory over him. The writer in Hebrews explains in chapter 2 that the Son of God came among us that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. The one who is God, even over Leviathan, suffered on a cross. He's the God who deals in scars because he bears them himself in the person of his son. So whenever the darkness of Leviathan threatens to overwhelm us entirely, we can turn to him knowing that he understands. He too has suffered with us. 
for the late John Stott, it was, it was God's scars in the end that drew him to worship. I could never myself believe in God if it were not for the cross, says Stott. The only God I believe in is the one Nietzsche ridiculed as God on the cross. In the real world of sin, how could one worship a God who was immune to it? He laid aside his immunity to pain. He entered our world of flesh and blood, of tears and of death. He suffered for us. Our own sufferings become more manageable in the light of this. Let us pray. Father God, we've been reminded in your word that that you created this world wonderfully and well. We've been asked to consider again that, that though evil appears to rule, appears to run rampant throughout our world, that that's not the case. That you hold evil on a leash. You've drawn lines and said to Satan, this far you may go and no further. And Lord, you've shown us that in a world where we do suffer and will suffer, that you have suffered along with us. Father God, as we think on our own and our friends' suffering, as we recognize the mystery that will always be, Keep large before us the cross of Jesus Christ. Remind us of his suffering for us and with us. And remind us of the victory that he has won over Satan and all who would stand against you. Lord, deepen our trust and our confidence in you. We pray it in Jesus' name.